Welcome back to the Standard Times podcast, Courtside with Kurt. I'm digital editor Brennan Curie, and I'm here with Standard Times reporter Kurt Brown, and we are joined by Maureen Boyle, the director of journalism at Stonehill College, and a former Standard Times reporter. And we're going to be talking about the case of the New Bedford Highway serial killer. Interestingly, Kurt and Maureen, you guys were rival reporters. Kurt, you were at the Herald News in Fall River in uh, the late 1980s when this was going on, and Maureen, you were here at the Standard Times. Yeah. Yep. And now uh, Maureen's written a book uh, about the case and the uh, research behind it. And, uh, Kurt, you've read it recently. And I have. We're going to be coming out with an article in the Standard Times soon, so we thought we'd sit down with Maureen. And first, let's kind of, uh, for those who aren't too familiar with the case itself, kind of give a little bit of a rundown of what it was like around here, how the, the case kind of developed as a reporter and what you guys saw. In, in uh, 1988, uh, 11 women went missing, at least 11 women uh, went missing. Uh, nine of them were later found dead along the, the local highways. But no one really knew that they were dead until they were, were found dead, pretty much. Uh, two women were found first in July of 1988, uh, one in the beginning of uh, the month, one at the end of the month. Uh, and they were found? They were found. Uh, one was found in Dartmouth and one was found in Freetown on 140. It wasn't until October, November uh, bef- that uh, officials and investigators really saw a pattern in the disappearances uh, of the missing women, and that is when it became really clear that there may be a serial killer in the city. And what was the pattern that they had noticed? Uh, it was uh, several women who uh, went missing who were uh, had a history of drug uh, addiction, they looked the same. In, in terms of their height and their weight, most of them were white, uh, very, very slender, uh, and, and tiny, petite. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you guys were covering this, and kind of so it slowly developed. It wasn't all of a sudden there's a no, serial no, killer no, on the loose. No, it was, wasn't until the third body was found that even investigators were thinking, this is not, not good. Uh, the first body that was found, it was on the 4th of July weekend. Uh, there wasn't much coverage, even in the Standard Times, so I think there was maybe five five or six paragraphs written. It was an uh, unbyline story, one-column uh, headline story. Uh, the second body uh, that was later identified as uh, Nancy Piva, that, uh, it was a very short story when that um Body, was, body was found. Well, it was actually skeletal remains. Um, when the third body was found, and that was by a cleanup crew, state cleanup crew, on also on 195, um, that was a, a, a little bit of a longer story, but there, it was not on the front page. It wasn't until they brought in some search dogs, and on the second day of the search, they found the body on 195 directly across where the third body was found. So it was about by the time the fourth body was, was the one found. that really got things yeah. rolling as yeah. a... Yeah. because they, 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 a, they, yeah. They're all connected. Yeah, they brought in a special uh, search dog. Yeah. It was a... Um, uh, the dog was handled by a Connecticut State Trooper by the name of Andy Redman, and he was the premier uh, cadaver dog handler. So the DA's office brought him mm-hmm. in, and he began searching... Uh, the highways, and right after that, another body was found, and then another, then another, then another. And Kurt, you look like you. No, and, and, I mean it was just uh, it was 
the, the thought that a, a, a serial killer, uh, and that was in the back of everybody's mind, and it slowly became more and more apparent, uh, was somehow rolling the streets of little old New Bedford was uh, very, very concerning. Uh, it was frightening. Uh, and these woman, women who were either drug-dependent or had history of prostitution were, were just vulnerable. Did you see it affect how people lived their life? I mean, were people changing as they went out at night? Or it, it was, there was a concerted effort in the city to say, no, this is uh, relegated to a certain population mm -hmm. in the city. So that uh, many people were not concerned at mm -hmm. all about their safety. However, this is a very, very small city, mm -hmm. and people know each other. There's large families here. People knew the women who were missing. Mm -hmm. they, uh, so they, they were affected by it. They were nervous about it. And I, I think that you wrote, I wrote, and I know everybody wrote, that these women, despite their histories, they all have mothers, they all have fathers, many of them have children. They're all somehow connected to us, and so we could, we could sympathize with them. The, the telling moment for me, and now I'll jump start it months ahead, was when the only person uh, who was uh, indicted right after his arraignment, uh, a, what would you say, 40 family members, 40, 50 family members, yeah. came to the Superior Courthouse on County Street, and the court brought a bus to transport them. And then the senior all assembled um, all together was just so powerful. I remember just getting the feeling that my jaw dropped, that, oh my God, these are just some of the people who are affected by this. Like Maureen had said, that these are all from large families, so that there was a larger context here. And then, I think from, personally, I felt from that moment on, I thought that there was a great deal of empathy uh, toward this case. Well, I, I think that there was an empathy for the families even before that mm -hmm. because there were so many uh, people touched by it. Um, I don't think there was a single person in this city who didn't know someone, who knew someone, mm -hmm. who knew someone. Just a couple degrees of separation did, yes. for um, everybody. So it, it, it touched a lot of people. Yes, it um, and it, part of it was because uh, the families were large. Um, you know, cousins upon cousins, uh, that's what the city, the city is built on, um, very close uh, family connections. And the one thing about all of the women who went missing, uh, or most of them, they were very close to their families, um, and that is what gave the uh, investigators their first really good uh, clues that there was uh, possibly a serial killer in at least three of the cases because the women kept very, very close um, uh, touch with their families. So they knew, they knew, the they, they knew within uh, a day or two that they were missing. So there were three cases where the police were able to pinpoint, yes, they were last seen here, and that was really crucial. In some of the other cases, it was a little, the, the women were a little bit more uh, deeper into their addiction, and um, the families weren't able to pinpoint the last days. 
Now, there was probably also a stretch as they started finding the bodies where some women had gone missing already, mm-hmm. but they hadn't found the bodies, and that had to be tough for those families as they were waiting to find out, right? If they, yeah, there, there it was had part been, of the, it was a very odd ritual. A body would be found, mm-hmm. uh, especially as the case heated up. A body would be found, often by a search dog. Um, media would be at the scene, and then they would fan out to all of the families. And it was almost like a death watch. Um, in, in some ways, it was kind of ghoulish. Yeah, they wanted good. to talk to the families. And, and what do you say after you know, four or five hours or X number of days that you have been interviewing different families? Well, you know, you know how they feel. Uh, they're in that, that limbo state. Is this the day that they're going to find out that their daughter is dead? What was it like for you guys to, to report this story as it was happening? Um, I remember being at uh, the family, the, the home of, of one of the uh, young women. Um, I, I, I mean, it was the families were amazingly gracious to us. Yeah, they were. They were very, very... Um, understanding of us and providing us with photos. Yeah. They they weren't... They had every right to be angry. Mm-hmm. They had every right to tell people to, you know, get the hell away from me. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. Um, they were very, very gracious. Mm-hmm. They were just very good to the media, even in cases where the media may not have deserved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there were some out-of-town um, outlets that were, I, I think, a bit disrespectful. Um, but go, covering it was very, very difficult because you are faced day-to-day with the pain that the families uh, suffered. You're sitting there with people on their worst day over and over again. Yeah, mm-hmm. and because it stretched out. It wasn't that um, their, their daughter was... Uh, went missing and was found dead a day later. It was, a body's found. Is that her? Another body. Is that her? Um, And in one case, one uh, young woman, she went missing in September? No, August. Um, And wasn't found until April of the following year. I I think we both tried to personalize the stories. We did, We tried to tell who they yeah. were, uh, what their hopes and dreams were, what they had accomplished, uh, where they had fallen astray. Uh, well, you know, it's, the, the weird thing about, it's not weird, the, the tragic thing about uh, drug addiction is that it just hooks people and just pulls them in. It, takes, the, it takes over their brain. Yeah, it, it, it takes over their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it takes over the lives of their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, that's the real tragedy. And, you know, Kurt and I have talked about this in, in the past, about uh, the heroin addiction uh, and the heroin crisis of today. And I can't help but wonder if uh, the public had paid more attention in the 1980s and it had more uh, treatment facilities available, particularly for women at that time, mm-hmm. uh, if what we see today with uh, the opioid crisis would have been averted. Now, how did the, uh, the investigation, the police investigation, proceed? Um, they started, you talked about they were finding the bodies as they went, and kind of how did that investigation... It was massive. It was massive. Uh, in the very beginning, they started having uh, meetings. 
brought in uh, police departments from throughout the area mm -hmm. uh, as a, a, a type of task force. They started swapping information. Uh, there were so many suspects. Uh, different investigators were tasked with uh, look at this person, look at that person, look at the, this person. They spoke with hundreds upon hundreds of uh, individuals and possible suspects, possible witnesses, um, just trying to trace and track the last hours of the victims, who might have seen them, who might have, who might have killed them. I think you mentioned earlier, Kurt, there was one indictment at one point, but then charges were dropped. There was Kenneth Pont. That's correct. And uh, so, I mean, what was that? I mean, it's the guy, he's indicted, and you maybe think he, they caught the guy, and then... What was interesting, he was uh, indicted a month before the uh, primary for district attorney. And that was the general election. There yeah. was no Republican. It was two Democrats running. The incumbent was running uh, along with the person who would defeat him, uh, Paul Walsh. So there was, throughout the investigation towards the end, there was a feeling that there was somehow it was being politicized. Um, the district attorney at the time, Ron Pina, you know, really denied that. He said, no, his goal is to find the killer. Uh, but there was always that undercurrent, uh, that feeling that is this political. Uh, so a month before the uh, primary, which really was the election, uh, Kenneth Pont was indicted by the grand jury. And after Paul Walsh took over, he brought in a special prosecutor to review the, the case, review all the evidence, and the special prosecutor um, decided, no, there wasn't any evidence to uh, be able to bring the case forward. If they had moved the case forward, uh, he said that because there wasn't any evidence, it would have been a not guilty. What, what was the feeling at that point around the community? I mean, there had been a guy who'd been indicted. They probably at one point thought, oh, they got the guy, and then... The family members were very angry. They're very upset uh, because they were on a roller coaster. You know, oh, good. Uh, there's this individual, Ken Pont. He's been indicted for one of the sus one of the murders, but they're telling us he did them all, so mm -hmm. we feel justice is being done. And it was... They felt let, let down. They felt used. Mm -hmm. They felt angry. They felt sad. They, they were grieving all over again. It was just unending for the families. Now you guys were covering, did you ever feel like they were, were close? Did you ever feel like they were yes. getting close to the person? Yeah. And, yeah, I, yeah the, I mean there was one individual that I thought was the, uh, was the person who did it. Uh, and I was waiting for that person to be indicted and uh, that did not happen. There was at different parts of the investigation. You could see sort of this ebb and flow. Of, oh yes, they're they're looking at this person. It looks like this is going to be the person, and then it's like the case falls apart. And then there's another mm -hmm. one, and the case falls apart. Mm -hmm. Remember now, these were all grand jury proceedings. Mm -hmm. I mean, so grand jury proceedings by their very nature are secret, and. I mean, we were, there was a daily watch at the courthouse. The grand jury proceedings were held at, uh, at the old Superior Courthouse on County Street, and reporters and TV stations were out there en masse, and we were following witnesses after they testified um, 
out of the grand jury room, following them to their cars, uh, quizzing them about what they testified to, what they were asked. Anybody who came out of that room, we uh, jumped on them, asked them uh, questions about where is the investigation right now? Are you still looking for so-and-so as a suspect, or are you looking at somebody else? We were kind of working in the dark in many ways. We uh, And collectively, we were reading each other and trying to put it all together. And then did it kind of slowly go cold near the end, or kind of how did it wind down? Uh, after Ken Pont was indicted, uh, Ron Pina was defeated as district, district attorney. Paul Walsh uh, took over the office, and it was up to him here. Is this case on his lap uh, to prosecute? And he, that's when he brought in a special prosecutor to say, okay, what type of case is it? And if um, look at it, the special prosecutor at that time, he said he was prepared to, to uh, try the case. And so he was going through all the evidence and quickly discovered there was no way he could um, he could try this case. There was no evidence to, yeah. to convict. And so, the, so after they decided not to charge him, then it just kind of... Well, no. Um, the investigation took on a, a different turn. While uh, early on during the, the Ron, Ron Pina's administration, and that, that, of course, is when the case was very, very hot. So there was a lot of interest in it. Um, there was a lot of press. Uh, Paul Walsh had a very different, mm -hmm. a, a different style. Um, he did not hold many press conferences, and any of the work that they did on the case was done much uh, was done quietly. Uh, any evidence that they sent out, he didn't find out about it until maybe months later. So it was a, he had a different style. And then, so it eventually just kind of receded a little bit of the background I yeah, mean, over they, the years. They, and yeah, they would uh, occasionally send out uh, some evidence for new testing, is you know, forensic science. Uh, there are more advances in forensic science. Uh, yeah, DNA evidence DNA, became more prevalent. Yeah. And, um, so then uh, let's fast forward a little bit uh, to almost 30 years yep. later. Uh, Maureen, what inspired you to, to tackle this as a subject for a book? Well, I had always wanted to write uh, the story of the highway killing case. One of the reasons why I hadn't done it much earlier was I kept on waiting for them to find the killer. You need an ending. What's the ending? Uh, but 30 years later, I realized maybe the fact that there is no ending is the ending. And it, it says something about the community uh, as a whole here and its resiliency and being able to overcome something that is so horrific and still just keep moving forward. It's a, it says something about the strength of New Bedford. Yeah, despite having no closure, they were still able to still move able to it. go forward and still have hope that, yes, a killer, even 30 years later, uh, might be found. And this is a story that resonates with people. Uh, Maureen is, is teaching, and, but I'm still reporting. I'm in the courthouse and I'm talking to cops, and I'm talking to lawyers, and this subject still comes up. Yeah. Uh, but ironically now, it's coming up from the next generation. Mm -hmm. It's coming up from the uh, children who are now lawyers, and their fathers or their mothers were either private attorneys or either prosecutors uh, at the time of the highway killing. So it resonates with people. Uh, this is a story that 30 years later is not going. 
And when, what was it, as you did your research for the book, what, what was that experience like? Would, well, was it, it revisiting it, things? Was it a lot of unearthing new things? What was uh, it? Some uh, new things. I was surprised at how much more information that investigators had unearthed that I didn't know about. How much work went into it. I mean, I knew that a lot of work went into the case, but I was absolutely amazed at how hard all of the investigators uh, were working and the, the depth of uh, the interviews, uh, where some of the, the stories uh, took them. And it, and it also transported me right back to 1988 as I was uh, researching the story. I could still remember the scenes um, that hot summer, uh, what it was like in the old New Bedford police station, what that front lobby looked like, what the detective division looked like, um, as they were using their manual typewriters and writing things out longhand, and the girls on the street. Yeah, it really just transported you. Yeah, it, it really did. And I'm uh, guessing now, Kurt, you've read the book. Did it have mm-hmm. a similar effect on you as you were reading it? Yes, it did. It yeah, you know, it sure does. There, uh, I mean, the the scenes in in the courtroom where uh, um, Ken Pond is indicted and then charges are later dismissed is uh, um, you're you're brought right back into that old building with the peeling paint and the and the chandeliers hanging down and I can re- can hear the gavel going off in my mind. Were there any particular, uh, you mentioned that one scene, but other scenes or moments in the book that really stood out to you? Um, <laughs> there, uh, there are several, several scenes, but I, uh, I don't want to give them away. Uh, I mean, this is a wonderful uh, narrative uh, book that's been written. Full disclosure, Maureen is a great friend. <laughs> but b- beyond that, uh, I don't want to give those away. Uh, will uh, when we write this story, we'll touch on many of them, but people should read them for their own, uh, by themselves, and process uh, them in their own way. But you, as somebody who went through the process and I knew did. as much as anybody, did you yeah. still learn some? I did. I, I did. I read this on vacation with my wife and, and our grandson, and I had to put the book down a couple of times and say, "How the heck did she get that?" Because on many of these crime scenes, Maureen and I went out there and, and ran into each other there. One December, was it December or January? It was in December. It was, was freezing cold. It was everyone at that scene, uh, when I re-interviewed them, uh, everyone, all, every single person just said, it was, oh, I remember how cold it was. It was biting it wind. It was biting wind, and uh, you could, you know, Fingertips were freezing. Mm. Your toes were freezing. It was, mm. it was as hot as the summer was that mm. year. That December was was as the coldest that day. Um, and and I'll I'll say that I mean this was a story that every editor assigned um, did not just assign anyone to. And every one of these stories, every one of these assignments, you had to bring your A game uh, because it was just extremely competitive. And this was a much different time for newspapers and TV. If you, if an editor had a piece of information that you didn't have, you were called on the carpet about it. And you had to wait 24 hours to Correct. catch up to them. 
That's right. There was no internet. Yeah, you couldn't be like, oh, we got it 10 minutes after them. There was, yeah. Uh, yeah, there was no internet. There was no uh, Facebook. There was no mm-hmm. Twitter. There was no email. Mm-hmm. Um, there was none of that. Yeah. Less than 30 radio, years ago, but there was radio, a different era. There was TV, and there was newspapers. Now the book, it's Shallow Graves: The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer. Yes. Uh, when is it? When will it be available? It'll. It comes out uh, September fifth. It's available for pre-order through uh, the publisher, University Press of New England, uh, Amazon, and Barnes and Noble. All right. Well, thank you for being with us, Maureen. Thanks, as always, Kurt, and as always, thanks to our listeners. Thanks for joining both on Facebook Live and on the Standard Times Courtside with Kurt podcast. Thank you for thank having you. me. Yeah, thank you, my dear. Yeah, thank you.